we're going to continue today on this idea of fear, uh, the series that we've been talking about, about fear. Um, and it's interesting because you're like, well, we're entering the Christmas season and we're talking about fear. Yes, we are. Um, and this is actually, I told Max, I would say this, this is his sermon. He came to me in the middle of the week and said, listen, my family's going to be swamped this weekend. I've got my sermon done, but I don't think I can preach. I said, oh, I can preach your sermon all day long. You wrote it, I'll preach it. I like this style. All right, amen. It's the Holy Spirit. Yes. Yes. Um, and so if you like the sermon, uh, by all means, my email's in the thing. If you didn't, don't forget who wrote it. So, uh, no, wait. Otherwise, I'm supposed to say that the other way around. That's what he told me, other way around. Sorry. Uh, but... Uh, before we dive right in, how many of you have ever worked for a perfectionist? How many of you are a perfectionist? Go ahead, a minute, it's okay. Yeah, both hands. Um, I worked for a perfectionist for a couple of years. Um, uh, it was quite interesting because perfectionists and Isaiah Serpent don't go together. Um, and so there was this one time when I was working for this perfectionist who uh, we won't name, uh, uh, he used to do a big event for his alma mater. I mean, it was huge. And so we were doing all of the brochures and flyers and mailing for this event. And he sent it out to about, I don't know, 2,000 different people inviting to this event. And I was, that was one way he contributed. He's like, I'll take care of all the mailing and I'll set up the event and then you guys run it, you get all the money and, you know, and, and we'll work it that way. So the event originally was supposed to happen in March. And uh, we're working at, at, around this time, Christmas time. We're getting it all together. And then, for some reason, they couldn't do it in March. Couldn't do the event in March. So we said, well, we'll do it in February. No problem. So we go in and we change what we need to change. And the event was originally supposed to be March 30th. Never forget that. March 30th was the event. So we go in, we change it. Uh, there's four of us in the office who proofread the, the things. And they have me proofread. I was one, which is a joke. Uh, but anyways. And so we send it all out. A couple weeks later, I'm sitting in there in his office because I was his assistant, and I'm doing something on the computer, and he gets the phone call from someone, and I can tell how this conversation is going because I probably would have been the person calling. They're like, hey, so-and-so, how's it going? Good? So I got the event in the mail. Oh, good. You got it. Great. That's wonderful. You coming? Well, I, I would love to come, um, but unfortunately, I went to put it in my calendar, and February 30th isn't a date. <laughs> yes. I see the steam start to come out of his ears. I'm sitting there going, oh, crap. Oh, no. Because I hear, February 30th is on the brochure. Really? Pull it up on the computer. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, we just sent out 2,000 mailings inviting people to a February 30th a day. <laughs> yeah. Now, needless to say, uh, I uh, got a new appreciation either for proofreading or for the lack of grace. Um, <laughs> that what transpired because it ended up being my fault because I was the last one to hit send uh, out and was the last person to proofread it. Um, and so, you know, working for a perfectionist, how do they solve that problem? Well, this is how you solve it if you're a perfectionist, right? You reprint everything. Everything. New brochures, new flyers, new letters, and you remail it, and then you put in another letter saying that, I'm sorry, I screwed up when really it was my assistant, but I screwed up, and... <laughs> Here's all brand new stuff. Now, not being a perfectionist, I did not see the, the wise choice of this. Of course, in not being smart enough, I spoke up and said, now, wait a minute. Why don't you just send out a postcard saying, oh, our bad. We tried to you know, add an extra date, see if God can move, but I guess he can't. Uh, it's not February 30th. It's you know, 
February 29th. Our bad, you know, because it was leap year. Our bad, you know, please show up one day early, you know, ha, 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 and send out like a little sticker for the flyers. No, that didn't go over well. Because as a perfectionist, you reprint everything and redo it. And now some of you, I mean, you may live with a perfectionist. And how does that play out in your house, right? They wash the dishes twice, right? They're that type of perfectionist. You wash the dishes before you put them in the dishwasher, which, again, I don't understand. That's why they call them dishwashers, you know? But they wash them twice. Or, you know, when that buzzer goes off on the laundry, you got you to get it out. I don't, I don't care that the U.K. game's on. You, you know, they come home like, uh, what are you doing? Oh, I just watched the UK. Oh, let me tell you, it was epic. It was indie. Uh, I left laundry in the dryer. Yeah, uh, I'll get that. It buzzed 30 minutes ago. Oh, yeah, no problem. It's dry. I'll get it. I'll fold it. No, it's now wrinkled. Yeah, that, isn't that how it, it transpires? You're like, oh, well, I'm sorry. Okay, my bad. I, I, throw in a wet sheet or something, you know, and it helps, oh, right? Now we know how some of you iron, you know? <laughs> Just throw in a wet washcloth and throw it for another 10 minutes, and those wrinkles will be partially gone, all right? But, you know, that's how it transpires. And if you are the perfectionist, what, what, it, what is it that, that's driving that factor is that, that you, you like to perform. Let's be honest. If you're a perfectionist, you're a performer. You like to make sure everything is working, everything is right, and, and whether it's your job that, that you know, you're performing for your alma mater by you know, hosting an event, or whether it's your house, this is your domain. Everything needs to be perfect so you can perform to your best ability. And you have a hard time understanding those of us who, well, you get what you get. Sorry, my bad. You know, it, it, it's hard. And the thing about it is, is both of us, no matter which camp you're in, we take that same idea and we put it in on God. Because isn't God perfect? Isn't he the first perfectionist there ever was? You know, I've, I sat through Sunday school my entire life, and, you know, I learned that God created the Garden of Eden, and it was perfect, you know, until man came along and screwed it up. You know, it was perfect. And so he's the first perfectionist. And so what happens is, is we, if you're in my camp over here, we sit here and we think, you know what? I screw up all the time. I mess up all the time. And it's true. I, you know, sometimes I's don't get dotted, T's don't get crossed, and you send out things saying February 30th. You know, it, it happens. Comes a great story. You laugh about it. <laughs> um, I doubt that person would laugh even today. But, <laughs> um, but it, what we then do with God is, it, it, what I do and what I have to struggle with when we talk about fear, and we're going to talk a lot about grace today, is that, that then I become afraid that, that I'm just one major screw up away with God. I'm just one major thing. I, I know I've screwed up. I'm just waiting for him to figure out that I screwed up so that way he can yell at me. Or that, and, and it doesn't matter that, that the UK game was on and I didn't get the laundry out, which that doesn't transpire in my house, so don't think, go and tell Rebecca that's not how we operate. But, um, you know, with God, that I'm just waiting one minute for him to come down and go, okay, that's it. You, you finally messed up. And, and if you're in this camp, this camp, what are you doing? You're trying to do your best to perform for God because that's what it's all about. You have to be perfect because he is perfect and therefore he has called you to be perfect and therefore I need to do everything I can to make sure that I am perfect because if I'm not, what happens? I'm mad at myself and that must mean God is really mad at me because I'm not perfect. And so God, I mean, he must just be, he is just ready to smite me off the face of the earth. 
But we know that's not how God operates. We know that God is a God of grace. And I think we all would agree that, yes, you hear that, and everyone goes, yes. And I have these conversations with people all the time about God and God of grace. And goes, yes, God is a God of grace for other people, for someone else. Yes, he can forgive that, but he can't forgive me. Yes, he can do that, but not for me. Or the other side of the coin that lately I've been having a conversation with a person is, yes, God is a God of grace, but they are a God of justice. You know, you got to put that little tone in there. You know, don't forget the justice, Isaiah. God is a just God, and therefore people must be smited, you know, so that way they can learn. Haven't you read your Old Testament? God wipes them out with one hand, you know. You're like, whoa, is that the God you really want to serve? You know, I lived that life for two years on earth with someone, and it's not good, trust me. It's fear and trembling, and you don't move. Um, but that's how it works. So before we get into this Christmas season, I wanted to look at, at someone who, who we often overlook in the Christmas season. Someone who we, we have to take and look at their life and say, wow, how did they overcome? Because you know what? They, of all people, had the ability to say, God is mad at me. God is ticked off at me. And what did they do? So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to be starting at verse 5. Um, and before we dive completely in, let me give you a little history here. Uh, the Israelites, I mean, they've had it rough. If you read straight through the Bible, you hit the minor prophets, as they're called. And I mean, that's some, that's some uh, uplifting reading. <laughs> right? Yeah. Now, everyone who's read the minor prophets are like, are you crazy? No, it's rough. Because the minor prophets are these prophets. They're not minor by any means. They're minor only because of the size of the, of the, of the book they wrote. But, you know, they, they, told, they were in there telling people, God is bad. He's going to get you. You need to stop. Right? Last time I preached, we talked about this. And, and that's, you know, they were, they were screaming, turn or burn, turn or burn. You know, they were, they were there screaming. And then all of a sudden, God stops talking. See, when we pick up in the New Testament, we just flip a page typically or and my iPad, you just hit a little arrow, and it goes right into the New Testament. And we forget there's 400 years here where God quit talking. No miracles. No prophet. Silence. Nothing. And this is after the Israelites had already been conquered by all these nations, the Babylonians, the Syrians, the Persians. I mean, they have just come through, and they have just taken what they want. They've shipped them all over the world. And, and now, if you are starting in Luke chapter 1, what you're starting is the, the Jewish people are still there, the ones that are there in Jerusalem. It's been 400 years. God isn't talking. God hasn't, had, there's been no prophet. All we know is that the Messiah one day is coming. Hopefully, you know, keep our fingers crossed. And we're living under Roman rule. And it's oppressive. It is hard. And so we pick up from there. When Herod was king of Judea, so, you know, you already hear that here's a foreign king. There was a Jewish priest by the name of Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Now, this is important because, see, what there, there were about, I've read reports that there were probably 20,000 priests still around uh, at the time, and, and they would take turns in, in the temple and doing the temple duties and doing the priestly dirty. And so what Luke is doing here is simply telling you, okay, you have, you have Zechariah, he was a priest. His wife came from the priestly line of Aaron. You know, they were, they were uh, the tribe of Levi there. And, and his little order, his little group that he was with, his little shift was the Abijah shift. You know, that, that was whose turn this was, okay? 
Verse 6, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the eyes of in God's eyes, careful to obey all of God's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they both were very old. So imagine this. How would you feel right now if you were Elizabeth and Zechariah? First and foremost, you are working in a temple of a God who hasn't spoke to his people in over 400 years, who hasn't had a prophet, who hasn't heard the voice of God. And you're working in the temple, you're doing your priestly duties, you're going through the routines and doing all this. And on top of that, you know, you're thinking, okay, God hasn't, hasn't talked to us for 400 years. He must really be ticked off. Let's be honest. You know, for, for him to quit talking. And on top of that, you know what? My wife and I are barren. She can't have kids. Which, if you've ever, you know, suffered with fertility, you, you, your heart aches when you hear that. Right away, your heart goes, oh, I know what that is. I've always wanted to have kids. I've suffered that. And if you've had friends, you know, you know, man, they've suffered through that. But in the Jewish culture, this suffer is magnified by 10 because this is, not only, this is not only an heir that will continue your line and your lineage, but it's also someone to take care of you when you're old. There are no you know, rest homes. There are no convalescent homes. There's not, it, it, you had an heir or nothing. And it also, they looked at kids as a means to help them go along in life. You had large families so they can help with whatever you were doing at the time. If you were a farmer, they were out, you know, they weren't looked at as leeches in life that just want fruit snacks and, you know, oh, sorry. Goldfish, cheese sticks, juice boxes, and, you know, they, they, I hear some people, uh, amen on that, right? Uh, but, you know, and so to not have an heir was, was huge. And it usually was looked upon that you'd done something. If you were barren, you've done something. God is mad at you. So not only are you working in this priestly order of a God who hasn't talked for 400 years, but you and your wife are barren. So God really must be mad at you. And that's what she has to be feeling here. So one day, Zechariah was serving, picking up at verse 8. God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week, which we just talked about. As was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. So what they would do is they had to burn incense twice a day. And so what they did is they drew lots, whether it was you know, a short man who gets the stick, got to go in, because when they went in to burn incense, this was the second holiest place in all of, you know, in all of uh, Jewish law and custom, you know, the, the next holiest place was the Holy of Holies. To go and burn incense, you're in the second holiest place, and he, by lot, got chosen to go burn incense. While incense was being burned, verse 10, a great crowd stood outside praying, which was the custom. When the incense was burning, you were to be praying. That's what you would see. The incense would be leaving, would be leaving the temple, and you would knew that it was time to pray. So if you're the priest and you're lighting incense, what are you probably doing? After you lit the incense, stand there and Thank you. Matt, Matt had, I can see it on the tip of his tongue. He, yeah, stay there and pray. So we don't know what Zachariah is doing, but we can only assume. And why can we assume that he was probably praying? Back in verse 6, carefully obeyed all of God, the Lord's commands and regulations. So we can assume that he was probably sitting there praying. We don't know what he was praying for, but I have a hunch because we're going to learn here in verse 11. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar. I don't know about you, but 400 years, God hasn't spoken. All of a sudden, I see an angel. I'm wondering what type of incense they're burning. All right, Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear. Sorry, another joke. I shouldn't make jokes. Forgive me, Lord. Uh, with fear when we saw him, when he saw him. But the angel said, do not be afraid. Yeah, right. Uh, Zechariah, God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. 
You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Spirit even before his birth, which is actually a testament to a uh, prophecy from one of the minor prophets. And he will turn many Israelites to, the, to their Lord. Ah, try it again. He will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and the power of Elijah, one of the greatest prophets ever. You know, so not only are you going to get a son who's going to be a prophet, this angel's saying, I mean, he's going to be on par with one of the greatest. You know, we just talked about a basketball game. This is someone coming down saying, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be bigger than Michael Jordan. He's going to be, the, you know, he's going to be on par with you know, whatever your favorite greatest basketball player is. Uh, and he will cause, so a power of Elijah, he will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, referencing another Old Testament verse there, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. So 400 years, God has been quiet. For 400 years, he hasn't said a thing. And Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, I find it very interesting that, that Luke is very careful there in verse 6 to tell you that, that they were what? Righteous in the eyes of God. So we know that these are people who have lived a life that, that people would consider righteous. They have continued with the traditions and the customs and have tried to live a right life. I don't know about you, but if God hadn't spoke in 400 years, forget it. Why are we doing this? Because we were born into it? Because we have to? You know, my turn came up to do temple duty. All right, whatever. I mean, none of us would, none of us would even bat an eye. And my wife's barren? And you want me to still go burn the incense and stand there and pray? What a joke. 400 years? None of us would even bat an eye and say that Zechariah would be wrong to have those feelings. And that's why Luke, I think, is careful in verse 6 there to point out that, that and let's read it again because I love this, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes and careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They still did it. They still did it because they had a hope that the Messiah was coming. They had a hope. And so this angel comes down and says, you know, and we learn later that Gabriel comes down and says, you know, man, you're going you're, you're gonna to have a, a prophet. And, and if you finish out the story, what happens, uh, Zechariah, you know, he, he kind of chuckles, he laughs in his heart, and then he's uh, struck mute until the son is born, which all the wise ones said, amen. Uh, but he couldn't talk, you know, and I can't blame him. I mean, you know, I would chuckle, okay? I'm going to have a kid. My wife and I are well beyond our years. God's already been so ticked off at all of the Israelites and, you know, the Jews around, you know, we've been scattered, we've been conquered, we're living under oppression right now, and, you know, I've been doing this duty for how long, and, I, and my lot gets drawn, and I get to come do incense, and you appear, and you, I'm going to have a son? <laughs> sure, okay, right, and, and not only a son, he's going to be a rock star in, 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 the, in the world of prophets? <laughs> I would chuckle in my heart, too. I probably, would, I probably would have opened my mouth, maybe, and said something wrong, uh, but what we can learn here and what I've been studying is that how many of us have that idea that God has ticked off at us because we can look at the past? How many of us say, you know, I've done a lot and God is just mad at me, and rightly so. And so I think there's four different things, that, four things that we can kind of take away from here. There's, there's the first group, and I'm putting them over here. This is the first group, and I've been a part of all these groups I, the first, well, maybe not the last one. I'll talk about that. But first group is I am so afraid that I have hacked off God that I, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to move. 
I'm not going to do anything. I'm, I'm not going to go do my priestly duty because I'll probably screw that up. And so I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to stand here and I'm just going to hope that God will show me where he wants me to move, which step he wants me to take. And that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to do anything. You know, and Zachariah and Elizabeth, they could, they could have been part of that crew. They could have been standing here and say, we're, not, you know, we're just going to hope that the Messiah shows up. We want him here, but we're not going to do anything. But no, they kept the regulations. And, and this, I call this the good old time religion. I had grandparents that, you know, as in the South here, you'd say, bless their hearts, would give me advice. You know, I'd call up and I'd talk to them and I'd be like, listen, I've got a, a sore tooth. Well, you just need to read the Bible more. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, uh, I guess. Um, you know, man, work's, work's rough. Well, you just need to pray more. But, you know, th- there was a nugget of wisdom there. There was a nugget of wisdom that said sometimes we get so struck with fear that we don't do anything. And I think what we need to be told is that, you know what? Maybe we do need, just need to continue reading, continue praying, continue moving. One of the elders in your church, actually, that's his philosophy. Move. You know, move. We're, whenever we sit in an elder meeting and we're talking about, well, what we should do? I don't know. Let's just move. If God doesn't want to go that way, I'm sure he'll put a big wall up. But, you know, better us moving than just standing still going, oh, which way should we go, Lord? You know? Max is laughing because, I mean, it's true. But I think some of us need to be reminded that Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were actually moving. You know, to, to, be, to be righteous in the eyes of God means that they were, there was movement. And so I think this Christmas season, let's not be paralyzed with fear, but let's move. The next one is, is you know what? Some of you are sitting here and you probably think, you know, I understand this whole grace thing. Or here you guys are talking about grace and that, that God forgives and that God loves. But I don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. You don't know my past. You don't know my history. There's no way God can forgive me. There's no way God, can, God will come down and say, all that's forgiven. It doesn't work that way in the world, Isaiah. You know, if I cheat on my spouse, you know, two times, trust me, or three or four or eight or, you know, one, I'm a dead man. It doesn't work that way. And you're telling me God forgets everything? You mean he doesn't just keep it on his iPad under a little thing, and then when he needs to pull it out, you go, well, you think you want to go out now? Let's see. Yes, I know you said you were sorry, but there's your list of wrongs. So I don't buy it. You know, I've done prison ministry, and, and, and you hear this in, in, in prison ministry a lot. You know, when you're talking to prisoners, a lot of them will tell you their life story. And I mean, it breaks your heart. And you tell them, like, God loves them. And they'll look you in the eye and they go, no, he doesn't. There's no way he loves someone like me. And some of you here, you've never fully accepted God's grace. Some of you here have never fully turned your life over to him and said, you know what? I'm going to turn from my past and I'm going to turn to you and trust that you, you say who you are and that you're a God of grace. And if you're in this camp, I, I want to talk to you this week. I, I mean, I, everyone says, oh, Isaiah's busy with UK, and that's true, but, but if you want to talk about turning your life over to Christ, I will move mountains. I will you know, drive 800 miles wherever I am from UK and come and talk to you. Max is here. I mean, we want to talk to you this week because God's grace is sufficient. And so, you know, there's this camp that, that just needs to turn. And then, and then this is the camp I, I live in the most. And it's the camp that says, but I'm waiting for God to, to, to smack me around because I know he has to be ticked off at me. I know there's something I've done in my past. And, and, and I get that, yes, he's a God of grace, but I know he's a God of justice. And I'm going to believe that his justice will prevail over his grace. And it's funny because I was talking to G-Towners this morning about this. We have a little meeting with them because, you know, you have four adults who serve your children day in and day out, and they don't get this context. So we meet and we talk about the sermon, 
and I was telling them, that, you know, it's so funny because we actually talked about this in G-Town not too long ago, that, that you know, do you really want to serve a God who, who gives what is rightly due because, you know, you are a mess up, you can't do everything right? Or do you want to serve a God that gives you grace and says, you know what, I already know, Isaiah, you're going to mess up. I created you. I already know you're going to screw up. I know you can't be perfect. I know you have no desire for perfectionism. It's okay, I made you that way. But I want you to accept my grace and my love, and I want you to know that there is a hope. And so there's this camp, and then the very last camp is, is the perfection side camp that sits here and says, you know, but I have to do my portion first. I've heard this from, I have some, some family members who are perfectionists, and, and, and when we talk about it, I mean, it's so funny, we talk about God's grace all the time in my family, probably because we need it most, and when, when we talk about this, they say, Isaiah, God can't do his part till you do yours. And that's what I get all the time. And that's because they're so perfection-driven. They're so saying, I need to do all my steps first. And then God can move. And I say, but wait a minute. If God is a God of grace, if God truly loves me, if I read what is written in Scripture, it says that he came to forgive, not to condemn. And that, you know, I can't do anything outside of him. I can't, can't save myself. Now, I can't do, so I can't do my part first. He had to do his part first. Amen. Right? So... I can't be bound by that perfection style. I have to accept his grace. And so I think with all four of these, we read this and we see that, that you know, God made a promise. He said his son was going to come and John the Baptist was going to prepare the way. And I love what, what the angel says here, what Gabriel says. Uh, he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah who prepare the people for the coming of the Lord he will turn hearts to the fathers, and listen to this. He will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. He will cause those of us who can't accept fully that God is a God of grace. That Jesus, whenever he came on the scene, what he did, first thing he did is he forgave. He didn't come down with a big old bolt to smite you and, and, you know, and tell you, God is mad at you and you are going to burn because you deserve it. But that... that He's a God of grace, and that is, that is what godly wisdom is to me, is to fully accept that, fully embrace it. And I think this season, this Christmas season, as a pastor, I've found that at Christmas season, many of us, this is the time we feel condemnation, right? This is the time where, where we feel like, man, I'm just a mess up. I just, nothing I can do can go right. And maybe some of you have had days like that. I know I had one last this Monday. I mean, I had a child in the ER. I woke up to a dead battery with the wife gone with the jumper cables, had my uh, stepfather come over and jump me. He locked his keys in the car. I then had to take him to go get his second set of keys. It's a big visit day for UK. I was running late. I was an hour and a half, and it's pouring rain. I mean, you know, within 12 hours, I quickly could be like, I have made God mad or something because I can't do nothing right. I mean, can't plan nothing right. Nothing's working right. Or you just go and smile and saying, by the grace of God, I'm here. By the grace of God, I'm going to go forward. In this season, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's so easy to just heap condemnation that I'm just not good enough. Or it's not the right Christmas. It's not perfect. This season isn't perfect if we have the right dishes out. Or it's not going to be the right season if we don't have the eight types of cookies out. Or, or you know, it's not the right season because we didn't get the right gifts. I mean, there's so many different things and so many different facets that we can put ourselves into and say it has to be perfect. It has to be right. Does it? 
How about this season we just accept that God is a God of grace and wants you, wherever you are on this line, to just accept him and know that, that even though he was silent, he had a promise that he knew, that he made, and he fulfilled it. And the thing is, we all have the same promise. We all have the same promise. And that promise is what? Christ is coming again. Now, it's been more than 400 years since that, you know, since this promise has been made thousands of years ago, and Christ hasn't been back. You know, it's been longer than 400 years. But the thing is, we all have the same promise. Christ is going to come again. And I think we need to look to Luke 1 and say, you know, this Christmas season, I need to remind myself that Christ is going to come again, and I need to be doing like Elizabeth and Zechariah that people can say of me, man, that's, that's a person of righteousness in God's eyes. That's someone who's kept the commandments. That's someone who's done what they should. Because we need to be ready, and our hearts need to be turned, as it said on the last verse here, to the uh, wisdom of God. So today, Max likes to give homework, but as a sign of grace, no homework. <laughs> what do you think of that? I, I, don't, I don't want to give out homework, because I don't know where you are on this thing. Maybe some of you truly just need to start moving. Some of you need to turn your hearts to God for the first time ever. And then some of you just need to accept that, that, that you are going to screw up. But God, you know, he's a God of grace and a God of love. And some of you, you can't work your way into heaven. You can't be perfect enough for God. And you just need to lay at his feet and say, okay, uncle, I give up. I give up. I'm just going to accept your grace and love you this Christmas season.